Welcome back to another episode of the Fatal Conceits podcast, dear listener, a show about money, markets, mobs, and manias, not necessarily in that order. If you haven't already done so, please check out our Substack. You can find us at bonnerprivateresearch.substack.com. And on the site there, you'll find hundreds of articles on everything from high finance to lowly politics and everything in between including, of course, many more conversations just like this one under the Fatal Conceits podcast tab at the top of the page. Today, we're delighted to welcome back to the show longtime friend of Bonner Private Research and the portfolio manager of Woodlock House Family Capital Fund, a fund he co-founded with Bill Bonner back in 2018, our good friend, Mr. Christopher Mayer. Welcome to the show, mate. How do you do? Uh, I'm well. Thank you for having me on. Always good to talk to you. Yeah, absolutely. You're in, uh, you mentioned before, a new place up in uh, Maryland. Yeah, I live in Mount Airy now. It's a nice little town. Uh, very green, lots of golf courses around. Oh, it's open. It's, it's nice. I like it here. <laughs> good, good stuff, mate. We were speaking just uh, before we hit the record button here, and I, I told you that I would be remiss if I didn't at least uh, throw out one financial question at the very top of the top of the section segment here uh <laughs> and that is uh i guess what everybody wants to know is uh after our june lows we've had a a 20 odd percent bounce in the s p uh what many would consider to be the classical definition of a bear market bounce is is this something that uh first of all that you agree with and and secondly does it concern you with somebody who's sort of in it for the long term and more focused on individual stock selection. Yeah. Well, everybody wants to know the unknowable, right? What's, is this the bottom or uh, we have more to fall or are we off and running? Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I don't look at it that way. Um, yeah. I'm focused more on the individual companies I own. And I have to say, this is probably one of the easiest bear markets I've been in yet because I have now second quarter reports in hand for all my companies, except one. And um, they're all firing on all cylinders. I mean, if you just looked at the financial statements, you wouldn't uh, see any con- cause for concern. You'd be surprised that the stocks were down uh, at mm-hmm. all. So, uh, you know, I think times like this are an opportunity. Uh, what's remarkable, I suppose, is that the swiftness of this decline. So we're through August. This is the fifth worst start for the S&P 500 going back to 1928. Uh, so that's that's pretty, you know, that's historically interesting. And that kind Anything of interesting the, happened in 1928 or thereabouts, yeah. or yeah, yeah, you know, uh, people like to make different comparisons, but uh, it doesn't have to be a catastrophe. You know, I saw uh, somebody on Twitter had put out charts where they said one for the bulls, one for the bears, and they had set up the uh, the decline that we see now and matched it up perfectly with, you know, 07, 08. <laughs> uh, but then someone else, you know, they, they'd matched it up perfectly with another market where it went straight up. So, uh, you right. know, when you do that kind of data mining, you, you can find the pattern to make whatever argument you want to make. Um, but they're all different in different ways. And, and this one feels different in that way, in that the underlying performance of companies so far uh, is strong. And then there are pockets of the market that are weak. Of course, if you, you know, some of the retailers have disappointed and banks uh, earlier didn't do, do so well, but 
uh, by and large, things seem to be holding up pretty good. So I'm I'm not yet uh, I'm not concerned. I, I I think this is an opportunity for sure. If you have any time kind of time horizon, five years at least, I think you're yeah. going to be pretty good while picking up some things today. Yeah, when we when we spoke for uh, your segment in Bill's roundtable, which uh, we recorded, I guess maybe a month or so ago, um, you mentioned, of course, that you know, with the benefit of hindsight, which we would all love yeah. to luxuriate in twenty four seven, yeah, uh, you look back at those other uh, market drops that that you saw in twenty oh eight and and uh, and before, and and now they look like little blips. So you know, who knows what the future will hold? But right. if you had the the steel to to hold and even pick up some bargains during that time. You you with some stock selection could done very well. Yeah, and the stock that I mentioned, I think, on that call has put in a new fifty two week low today. So uh, <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> Maybe it's another even, opportunity. It's even better now, right? Yes, yes. There yes, you yes. go. Back up the track. All right. Well, uh, looking at your uh, bookshelf behind you, there we were also talking about uh, one of the things that uh, I love about our conversations, and for listeners and viewers now who are. Just joining us, I know we've got a lot of uh, of new readers on the Bonner Private Research Substack, so welcome if that's you. Uh, Chris and I have had uh, a few conversations now, maybe three or four, where we thumb through uh, Chris's bookshelf and uh, just kind of do a little bit of a deep dive into what makes Chris tick as both an investor and a thinker and a writer. Um, so I'll link to a couple of our previous uh, conversations there, so you can get a little flavor of what we're about here. But uh, we were emailing a little back and forth in preparation for this call, Chris, and you nominated a few uh, yep. typically characteristically eclectic uh, clutch <laughs> of books, uh, as you tend to do. Do you want to take us off from the from the top, maybe beginning with the classics, or where do you want to start? Uh, yeah, we can we can begin with the classics. So uh, a lot of these books behind me are old philosophy books. This is my main main study here but then i cross the hall i got another library where my investment books and other books are and then downstairs there's another little section where some fiction is and and since we moved it's this library is about half the size that it was but um it's the way it goes but the cl classics i had recently read and and thought i would i would share is uh uh rousseau the reveries of the solitary walker mm. um he wrote this as his last book and uh, it's a series of 10 walks. So he goes off and he kind of writes what he was thinking about on these different walks. And um, I don't know if I describe it, I would say it's kind of a rumination on uh, happiness, what makes people happy, what makes them unhappy. And so this is, you know, old Rousseau kind of looking back and uh, he's, he's an interesting guy. I mean, he's a really good writer, but... Mm -hmm. I have to say he's also kind of a hard guy to like sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. We mentioned you mentioned in the email that you had read the confessions, which I have not read yet, but I've heard about them. Yeah, and, just uh, I read that recently, actually, just in the past, I want to say six months or so. Yeah. And uh for maybe a maybe a spoiler for some listeners who haven't gone around gone through much of their Rousseau yet, but uh yeah, he had a long running feud with uh with Voltaire after yes. a, a friendship earlier in their life and and yeah Voltaire was pretty savage in his attacks on Rousseau later in his in, in his life especially yes. for perceived hypocrisy around That's raising right. kids and education and that kind of stuff which is 
yeah, it's pretty hard to like him after you discover some of those warts. Exactly. Skeletons exactly. In the, closet. And the way he just kind of left his kids at a, I forget, was it like a, uh, I think it was a church or church. Yeah, just for them to, yeah, just sort of, yeah, it was unbelievable. Yeah. But there are a lot of things like that. But then I think also he's very thin skinned. He seems to take offense pretty easily. Um, but having said all that, he's, he's also a good writer and deep thinker. And, yeah, in this book, he talks about things that make him almost sound a bit like an Eastern philosopher. He starts talking about what makes people happy is uh, comes from the inside and not being too bound up with externals and uh, being able to be more unaffected by the vicissitudes of life. And, uh, you know, he he really comes to appreciate nature. There's some interesting one letter where he talks about how he gets in a boat and goes in the middle of a lake and just kind of lays at the bottom of the lake, uh, bottom of the boat, looking up at the sky and, uh, you know, kind of loses himself for hours mm. and in the kind of peaceful meditation. So I don't know. It's, um, it's, it's a fun read. It's an interesting kind of little, and it's a lot, it's not heavy reading either. It's, it's pretty easy to read. Yeah. I think some of his other works, Emil in particular is kind of notoriously difficult yeah, and he's known for his political stuff, so I know that that can be difficult too. Yeah, social contract and uh, and whatnot. It, what do you make anything of the of the kind of uh, rambling philosopher at all? I mean, we maybe obviously differing vastly in their their kind of worldviews, but you know, I I think back to sort of Nietzsche or yeah. you know even even you know, who wrote in a very aphoristic style. He would go on these long walks and sort of just meditate uh, on what he thought yeah. was important. Um, uh, obviously, more recently, Taleb wrote his book of aphorisms, and it seems yeah. to be a, a, a one type of medium uh, through which to distill yeah. your thoughts and get some clarity. There anything I always think of Henry David Thoreau also. You know, he'd do these walks and he'd write in his journal. Yeah. Uh, Emerson was a great keeper of a daily journal. Kierkegaard was also someone who wrote avidly in a journal. I have his journals right there. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I think there's something to that, you know. uh, And then even in the, you know, some of the great Eastern philosophers too, they didn't, they they wrote in little snippets and, um, you know, Lao Tzu and the Tao Te Ching and Chuang Tzu and those guys. I mean, so yeah, I think that's, uh, and that compares to like these heavy, weighty, you know, treatises that like, Hegel and you know, Kant would write, they're impenetrable. So I think there's something to say for that. The, the critique on the top of my finger. Yeah. That's critique <laughs> right. of pure reason. Yeah. Right there. Yeah. I have that there. That's over right here. Big yeah. These, these big weighty, these big weighty terms that I wonder if, uh, if those kind of system builders, the, the Hegel's and the, uh, Wittgenstein's and whatnot, um, you know, they get so dense. It's almost, uh, sometimes yes. a little impenetrable, but, Going back to you and I've spoken about uh, Thoreau before, and of course Walden, uh, is kind of uh, epic there. Yeah, and he was he was social distancing a long time before it was it became cool uh, on the on the outskirts and up there in New England. Um, and I often wonder when you know just by sort of uh, occupational hazard we have our noses so close to the screens. And we might be watching ticker symbols or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you're analyzing charts or looking at, um, you know, looking at company reports and that kind of things. If if we wouldn't benefit a little from just stepping back, getting some perspective, 
going to play a game of golf, uh, going for a walk yeah. in the woods and mm-hmm. and sort of de decluttering uh, from time to time. Yeah, definitely think that's that's a good point. Uh, you got it. And there's a science about that too, about, you know, you press yourself too much. Your brain needs some time to sort of recharge. You know, concentration mm-hmm. is almost like a resource. And if you're mm-hmm. just, con- if you constantly are at it, you got to give yourself a chance to regenerate. It's also interesting. Some of these philosophers like Nietzsche, some people think that it's because he had such intense migraines and a lot of other ailments that, you know, he kind of preferred to write short because he couldn't sit there for that long and write, oh. you know, long pieces. I don't it's know if that's true or not. Yeah. Interesting theory. Um, but it does also seem like some of the more philosophers who write shorter do have some love of nature too. They do tend to get outside, they're walking, and then they write down these observations. So, yeah, I think there's some value in detaching. You know, even Bill, Bill has told me that before. He says, you know, there's you should have some other outlet other than markets. You know, he likes analysts who have some. For him, you know, he likes his masonry and he's always working with his hands. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, but it's it's good to have something else. Yeah, we uh, we over the over the summer, uh, my wife Anya and I and our, our daughter were uh, touring around a little bit of Europe. Uh, we went to visit uh, to visit the Bonners uh, in their country uh, estate out in very rural Ireland. Um, yeah, I was there in early June as well. So oh, yeah, that's right. Close, we, we were close in there. Just missed timing. each other. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> but it's it is it is funny to see. You know, Bill will do his his uh, daily work and then he'll throw on the dungarees and uh you know march down the march down the uh the the country lane and uh yeah spend a few hours doing some masonry work and come back all kind of dusted up and and you know for, for lunch or whatnot but yeah i think you know you see it's almost akin to when uh, you teach your children for example and they've forgotten a word they get stuck on something they want to say something and yeah. for the life of them it, it won't come to them while they're thinking about it and you have to kind of distract them uh and get them thinking about something else talk about the what they comes. did that day and then all of a sudden uh, yeah there it is i think like in the investing world i mean it's uh there are freaks like warren buffett who seems to have no interests other than investing <laughs> <laughs> big max uh, yeah yeah i mean he's really I don't know if you ever read Snowball, which is the biography on him. No. And uh, you really get into how he's really a strange guy. You know, he has a diet of a six-year-old, living in the <laughs> same house all that time, not particularly well-read at all. Like he wouldn't, I don't know if he'd know who Rousseau was. I mean, he yeah. just doesn't have that kind of background and no real hobbies or interests. I mean, he does play bridge. So maybe that counts. Maybe that's something. Um, yeah. But very strange. It's almost like a, like a, a kind of idiot savant you have all yeah. these un, un arrested developments in other aspects of one's life but then when it comes to uh, analyzing markets he's just his brain just kind of goes into overdrive yeah, a lot of the, the better investors i know they are they do like to read and they're curious so i, I think that's a good trait to have uh, you know you're learning about because when you think about businesses you're learning about people and then there's People have different philosophies and styles, and there's it, it, you know, I often think like you can tell this history of the world through any different lens. You could tell it through investing, you could tell it through music, you could tell it through food. You know, yeah. if you go deep enough, they all kind of come together, and and these yeah. philo- same philosophical topics eventually crop up. It's interesting, isn't it? That's uh, that was one of Anthony Bourdain's kind of observations that he would use. I mean, you mentioned food and 
you know, we've talked obviously about travel and music and things like that before. And he was a, a great believer that the same conversations are essential to human nature, no matter where you go around the yeah. world. And you can use something like food as, uh, you know, something as common and as communal as that, um, that mm -hmm. ceremony uh, it, in, as a way of getting into all of the things that were happening in wherever he was, Phnom Penh or, you know, or, or Nairobi or what have you, he would talk to people and then get into, you could learn about supply lines. You learn about living standards. You learn about history. You learn about the politics of the place, the economics, yep. all of the kinds of things that you see reflected in a stock market. For example, you might see if you really pay attention reflected, uh, you know, breaking bread in, in some far flung place around the world. So, yes. Agree yeah. with that, and uh, definitely a big Bourdain fan. So maybe that was seed was planted there. He's a yeah, guy. He's a guy I miss. You know, I'd like to have him around. See what he thinks of some of this crazy stuff going on. Of course, yeah. there's a number of people we could say that about, but uh, yeah, he's a good one. What do you think of? Uh, we were mentioning as well. Um, you, you brought up the biography of of uh, the Oracle of Omaha. There are there some other. Um, I know you recently read uh, Bucky or Buckmaster. Yeah, Buckminster uh, Fuller. Fuller's um, bio. Are we? Uh, yeah, it's a big fat book. It came out just recently. It's called uh, "Inventor of the Future" by Alec Navala Lee. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I, I when I first saw it, I was very excited because I thought, "Wow, Buck, Bucky, as he would like to be called, uh, getting the royal presidential treatment." You know, big fat biography. And he was—he's hard to describe what he did. I mean, he was an inventor, and he was a poet and he was, did all kinds of things. I mean, in his life, um, philosopher as well. I mean, he wrote books and he, he was a coveted speaker. Uh, so I mean, he did a lot of different things, but anyway, I read this biography and I think it is the kind of the definitive biography of his life. Like the, the, when, and the, you know, he did this then and here and there and kind of sorts through, uh, different events and separate some of the myth from what probably happened. Mm -hmm. um, so in that sense, it was, it was interesting to read it, but in the other sense, it, you know, it, it, it focused a lot on his personal failings. He had a number of affairs and he was some other problems and it kind of took away some of the magic. I mean, I don't think anybody, mm -hmm. if you didn't know who mm -hmm. Buckminster Fuller was and you picked up this biography and read it, you probably, You'd walk away thinking, you know, what what's all the fuss about? You know, you know. Right. <laughs> but he was, I mean, you know, Steve Jobs loved the uh, Buck Mr. Fuller, you know, that famous Apple ad where think different mm -hmm. and when it goes through like 16 or 17 different icons. Buckminster Fuller is in that ad, and that was at the mm -hmm. request of Steve Jobs. Uh he received like 30 honorary degrees. He had something like 25 patents. And so, you know, that doesn't really, this book, I didn't feel like it really brought home any of that. He was, again, a very coveted speaker all over the world. People, I mean, he had fans all over the place. So uh, anyway, yeah, that's it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that I, when we talk about historical figures, even as, you know, recently and sort of borderline uh, contemporary figures like Buckminster Fuller, it, one wonders if they would be kind of given a start today or whether they'd be, <laughs> yeah. you know, canceled or, or you know, right. people, would, people would focus so much on their shortcomings where, you know, you're not reading a Buckminster Fuller book for marital advice, uh, presumably yes. you're reading him for, you know, his philosophy on this or his, That's uh, a good point. You know, his thoughts on that. I, I wonder 
in our haste to uh, dig up the worst dirt on everybody that we possibly can now, how much of the good we miss out on. Right. Of course, there's a lot of people like that in history, right? If you were going to go through, you'd hardly read anybody. I mean, yeah. shoot, Heidegger. Heidegger is one of the you know, oh, yeah. blocks for the 20th century. He's Nazi, out. He'd be out. <laughs> Ciao. I mean, you know, look at some of the stuff Hemingway wrote, you know, homophobic stuff and misogynistic yeah. stuff. Forget it. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a, good, it's a good point. Yeah. All right, mate, let's move on to uh, your, okay. is it Deals from Hell? I think we've got up next. That's a yeah, great it's title. It's called uh, uh, Deals from Hell, M&A Lessons That Rise Above the Ashes by Robert Bruner. Wow. This book was sent to me by a fellow money manager. Uh, and it's, uh, well, most of the book is case studies of M&A deals. But if you were to get this book, I would recommend uh at least just reading like the first three or four chapters, because what it really does is it it sort of kills this myth that M&A is a bad thing, mergers and acquisitions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's a, pre a prevalent view among people, even professional investors, you know, they don't like acquisitions. And their view is when you do an acquisition, and most of the time it destroys value for shareholders. Mm -hmm. And uh, in this book, you know, he goes through uh, a lot of research and studies have been done in M&A, and he comes to the opposite conclusion, that M&A does pay. Uh, oh, wow. and, he, and it's interesting for the, fail, you know, why that is the failing. So he says, uh, an objective reading of more than 130 studies supports the conclusion that M&A pays. Um, uh, and one of the reasons why the conventional wisdom fails, as he says here, uh, people generalize too readily from the findings of a single study. So, you know, there are some very high profile disasters, right, in, right. in mergers. And that's kind of what gets all the attention um, versus all these all the little deals that get done along the way that that worked mm -hmm. out uh, perfectly well. Um, yeah. So the tendency is to exaggerate the failures. And the key line here that I double starred where he says uh, all M&A is local, which I really like. Um, you really have to look at it kind of on a case by case, deal by deal basis. And it took me a while to get over that hurdle. But now right. I found I found some companies that are really great acquirers of other businesses, like just systematically are able to add uh, and plug in businesses to their to their growing little empire and uh, do very 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 well. So is um, this something that's uh, affected the way that you think about the universe of potential investments that you that you come well, across? I would say daily, uh, weekly, uh, monthly. Yeah, I would say I have I have discovered this earlier. So I wouldn't say this book uh, turn, turned my opinion on it. What I think, because I've discovered that on my own, that the mm -hmm. M&A is really nuanced. And I've discovered a number of these companies, uh, they're called, people call them now serial acquirers that have done very, very well. There's a number of them in Sweden. There's a couple in the UK, Halma, Diploma. There's in the US, there's uh, several as well that uh, just continue to acquire companies as their main avenue of growth. And mm. uh, they've been wonderful investments. So what makes those successful versus, you know, the failures? And right. this book helps kind of highlight that too. I mean, the failures are ones when they're, you've, you've got greater propensity to fail if it's a very large deal, if it's very complicated. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, there if versus smaller deals, if you're doing something that's in a business unrelated to yours, uh, there's a number of things he goes through. But I, I think the value in this book is really, busting that basic, that general myth and forcing you to kind of think more nuanced about the topic of mergers and acquisitions. 
Mm, yeah, that's interesting. Those uh, those kind of myth busting, um, yeah, those myth busting books, I guess, or skeleton keys or whatnot that kind of turn things that you might have thought uh, previously on their head. I'm wondering if there's if the general consensus is is such that murders, uh, I said murders, but mergers and acquisitions, good slip, <laughs> slip yeah. Freddie slip there. If the general consensus is is so far in one direction that that might not be uh, offer a little pocket of kind of hidden opportunity or overlooked opportunity for people who can kind of get past that. Yeah, uh, I think it. I think it. I think it yeah. did for a while, and then uh, I think a lot of these uh, murder these serial acquirers are now price pretty well. So I, I don't know that that's necessarily true anymore, but mm-hmm. it, it might be um, part. Sometimes it can be. And part of the reason I think is it can be difficult to model these things, you know, and because uh, you don't necessarily know when the deals are going to strike mm, right? Uh, or what they're going to look like. And if they de- deploy a lot more capital than you model, then you're going to, then there's going to be some big surprises. So yeah. it's a tough thing to predict and project. And so if you're willing to go with the kind of uncertainty and you trust the capital allocation, trust the team and the process that they have, and, and they have a track record of successful deals, and you can do that. You can look back and see whether deals were successful or not. You can see whether there are impairments. You can see what happens to the overall company's returns on capital, whether they kind of go down over time as they do acquisitions, kind of watering it down, or they're, mm-hmm. they're able to preserve it or even grow it. Mm-hmm. And it depends on the amount of disclosures companies give you. Sometimes you can you know, really dig down and you can see how certain subsidiaries they acquired, uh, how they've done sales and profit-wise, and you can kind of back in and say, wow, that was a really good deal. Um, so I think that's that's the key is uh, it's like most things in investing in life. You, if you can't go through too general, you know, everything has nuance and our culture forces everything to be kind of squished and, re- and you know, re- reduced to a headline or reduced to a soundbite or reduced to like a one single powerful message that you can deliver. But on most things, there's a lot of nuance and, and complexity. Yeah. Looking in the, and oftentimes I think that looking beyond that kind of uh, the black and white or the binary uh, conception of the yep. world can flesh out a lot of a lot of useful uh, uh, a lot of useful information. I was going to ask because you you touched on a few um, a few different investing jurisdictions there: Scandinavia, uh, Europe. Do you find? I know, for example, that you invest. Um, you know, you have an international portfolio. Yes. Is, are there things that you look at in particular when you go into foreign markets? Say, for example, the transparency of their reporting, the maturity of of the market yeah. uh, in general, or does, does that all depend on price? Um, yeah, there's definitely interesting jurisdictional differences. So even on this uh, topic of M&A, for example, there's a solid pocket in, in Stockholm that, uh, I mean, there's like a dozen of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're all good at it for some reason. There's like, it's like a little, it's like a Silicon Valley of serial, serial <laughs> acquires. They culturally, there's something there There's something about it. And you don't see it. Like you don't see anything like that in Germany or France mm-hmm. or, you know, it's just different. And in the UK, there's a few. And then in the, in the States, there's, there's several, but it's interesting to me sometimes about how you can have such big differences, you know, in, in regional markets, even if you compare Sweden to the other Nordics. I mean, it's just, um, there's, there's a lot of differences there about how businesses are run. Like for example, a lot of the Swedish serial acquirers will 
report on return on capital employed. I mean, they'll be right there, a number that, I, you know, and they'll be tracking it and, and targeting it. And I'm, I'm, as an investor, I'm like, that's fantastic. You know, you, yeah. <laughs> that's what you right. want to think <laughs> exactly. about, right? And not this BS <laughs> about sales growth or earnings or, you know, sometimes and these guys are focusing on the real things that matter. It's like they get capital allocation. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, those kind of things are pretty neat when you, when you find that. Yeah, that's got to be, you know, you, you toss a line over over the, the side of your boat and uh, yeah. up in Walden Lake and you find a, a a lot of what you like, you start uh, to fade up again. And, yeah, yeah, good stuff. Um, were there, just going from the title there, I haven't read the book, but I expected there to be some uh, some horror stories in there or is that just a... <laughs> yeah, just no, a, there... A, yeah, I mean, well, the classic like AOL, Time Warner, you know, when oh. Time Warner bought, <laughs> bought AOL at the top. And uh, yeah, I mean, then you've got some horrific charts here where, uh, you know, where they where they announced the merger and then the company, you know, is worth less than like the deal value was, you know. I mean, it's just <laughs> a remarkable amount of destruction of wealth on some of these things. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely some, there's definitely horror stories there. Right, that's the that's the the headline uh, grabbers that you were mentioning before that shaped opinion shaped public opinion. That's it. That's exactly right. Those are the ones when people think of. You think of disasters, mergers. Most people can think of some. Yeah, but um, <laughs> I was trying that, to think of the line from uh, Is it American Psycho? He's in murders, and someone will write in the comments section what down below what it is: murders and abductions, or something. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, let's let's move on, Chris, to your uh, latest release. How many is this for you now, mate? You've got to be working on half a dozen. This is number five. Number five. Think, okay. Yes. All right. So, so it's called the from Mr. Book. Mayor. It's called Dear Fellow Timebinder: Letters on General Semantics. All right. So, you're going to have to back. Up, you're going to have to back up a little bit here because we're going to get back into some previous conversations. Yeah. Uh, so Krasinski, you know, I, right, layout, right, right. If, map the terrain for us. If you read, uh, if you read, how do you know this book is like a second crack at those ideas, except that I dropped the dropped the investing focus. So how do you know is really applying these ideas to investing, and then this is just a more general exploration. And I I call it letters. I was actually kind of uh, I say it in the preface, but inspired by Seneca's letters. You know, he wrote these letters where he explained Stoicism, and there's some debate about whether they were really letters or not, but they were that, that he would mail them, but they were written in the letter format as if he was teaching somebody. And I thought that's a good way to do it. So I did this. If I were teaching someone these ideas, you know, how would I do it? So what are those ideas? I mean, you mentioned Korzybski. Yes. Alfred Korzybski was a guy in the 1930s who sort of created this discipline called general semantics. As you can think of it more as kind of like an aid to critical thinking. It's kind of a, focuses on the assumptions that we make with uh, different symbols and language and how that, how they interplay with how we behave. And um, it's, it's, a, it's a lot to it, actually. There's a lot of different things to it. So it, it can get, it can get kind of deep and get into things about, you know, all kinds of things about causation and things we take for granted. So what, what, what makes this book different too, is I, was able to, it's published by the Institute of General Semantics. And so they gave me access to the archives for Etc., which is their journal that's they've been publishing since 1940s. And another publication they have, uh, the General Semantics Bulletin. So these two archives, I was able to go back and 
and I kind of mine them because there are some interesting characters that taught these ideas over time. You, you won't know them now, but they're in the book. People like Wendell Johnson or Irving Lee and S.I. Hayakawa, all these different people. And they're, they're kind of interesting characters on their own. And so I was able to get different, pull out different things from, from those archives. So, you know, it was, it was really interesting to read in the 1940s what, you know, people were thinking about, worried about war, of course, just hangs over mm -hmm. the whole thing. And uh, and so it was very appropriate, uh, appropriate then because they were looking at things like propaganda and taking apart the meaning of all these different terms and phrases and, and you know, the, the ideas behind them. So uh, that that's one thing that was really fun about doing this book. And I just did it kind of on the side pieces of the letter some of the letters were already published in their journal etc over the last couple of years and then finally the book came out this year so i wrote most of it actually in 2020. oh and uh um, as you're speaking now i'm thinking about uh the the messaging let's call it what would be called messaging today uh, or what used to be called propaganda before it underwent a public relations campaign <laughs> itself <Yeah. laughs> right. and, uh, from the the department which is now called public relations but going all the way back into i think it was it would have been in the in the teens i want to say when uh edward bernays or eddie bernays was just getting his start in uh, the united states he was the he was the um the fellow that brought the world the phrase making the world safe for democracy and that mm. was the banner under which he convinced uh, woodrow wilson to commit troops commit American troops to World War One, a largely war-weary uh, continent uh, in North America that had only just sort of emerged from its own civil war a generation or so previously. And all of a sudden, we have just with the the, the quote-unquote right messaging, uh, yeah. you know, we have <laughs> troops marching off and uh, it, it does make you think if that's happening then, if it was happening in the forties, if people, if this was on people's minds, uh, it would be perhaps naive to think that this wasn't happening at some level uh, today. Yes. And it's, I mean, it's, it's interesting to think about why that stuff works. You know, why does why does that phrase have power making the world safe for democracy? What does that even mean? You know, when you right. think about it. <laughs> and so that's kind of what general semantics. I think the biggest thing I've taken from Korzybski really is that to be conscious of what he would call abstracting. So there's all these words and phrases that we use that really don't mean anything when you think about it. They mean mm -hmm. whatever people want them to mean. They have dozens and dozens of different meanings. Democracy recession. would yeah, recession <laughs> would be one. Democracy <laughs> would be one. Capitalism would be one. You know, you hear about people talk about especially politicians when they talk about our capitalist system. And then you talk about other people and they're like, what are you talking about? It's not, we don't have a capitalist system. We've got, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's a it's corporatocracy. Heavily, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. So, um, or, you know, all the kinds of labels we throw around, even political parties saying someone is a Republican or a Democrat doesn't really say much. Right. Uh, it's just freighted with assumptions. And, and then sometimes words, as we know, become so freighted with, uh, you know, connotations that we have to invent new words or we have to drop them. We can't even say the old words anymore. So, right. You look like you suddenly have some examples to throw in there. <laughs> I know. I'm not going to risk cancellation. You lit, you, by you lit up a little bit there. Like, listing, yes, listing off a, 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 yes. a shopping list of unmentionables. But yeah, it's certainly, right. it's certainly the way. And I think also with regards to, to, uh, to the way semantics is treated in, 
in our kind of modern public discourse, we have a narrowing of definitions that we're kind of permitted to use or that we're yeah. almost shoehorned into. Yes. And I'm wondering if you, uh, while you were mining these archives or doing research for your own work, if you came across any t any time, it's kind of an or Orwellian idea, but when uh, the range of concepts, the range of language that we had available to us was so narrowed that it impacted the way that we were even able to conceptualize and think about things in the first instance. Mm -hmm. Yes. You know, I, I can't, you know, there's a hypothesis I talk about in the book. It's called the Worf-Saper hypothesis. And the idea is that the language we use actually actively shapes what we think. Mm. Uh, so what you're saying, um, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but I, th I can just think of Worf's examples because he used to work in insurance and he would say things like, uh, so he would go and let's say there was a fire started in some factory and he would have to investigate the fire and he would find out, oh, well, you see, there were these drums that were labeled empty, you know, gasoline drums or something. And mm -hmm. people would be very careless with them. They assume they're empty, empty. They're not empty. They still have vapors in them that are very flammable and so on and so forth. And so they led to the mishandling of it. Uh, or I remember there was another time where he talked about how uh, there was this like pool of water where they would sometimes dump, uh, you know, like flammable liquids and things. And there would be a vapor on there and someone would, was there smoking a cigarette. And then they threw the match in the water thinking he would put it out instead lit the whole thing on fire and <laughs> exact opposite so, you know it's unintended like, consequences yeah his so his point was you don't you know if you don't label these if you labeled these things differently we would actually think differently about them if you didn't say they were empty gasoline drums you called them something else uh people would behave differently that's a slightly different point than what you're making but you i mean it's so it's so endlessly fascinating because you can go on about this forever um yeah. but part of what this book too is there's a lot of little helpers and things like I know just from studying general semantics for give you like one example there's this whole thing about you know being mindful of absolute so when people say things like always and never or you know they say something is and all these kinds of things always yeah you know <clears throat> so anytime I hear people use those it's like a little you know light uh -huh. goes on and got to be careful of that uh so you get suspicious of certain words and it can help you because then you ask questions, you know, follow up questions to that. Mm. And somebody say, well, you know, these immigrants are all, you know, thieves. And you'll be like, all of them, <laughs> you know, yeah. mergers Everyone? and acquisitions are always <laughs> yeah. a bad idea. They all, really? they are, they're all, all terrible. All, like, all of them, you know, <laughs> yeah. so uh, yeah, there's little clues like that words that will kind of perk up and, and and as an investor, I mean that's important because I'm I spend a lot of time talking to people and asking questions and and trying to parse their answers. We've we've never lost uh, shareholders' yeah investment. Never. never? Mm. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chris, uh, tell us where we can uh, get your your book here. It's. Uh, yeah. Dear fellow time bender, I'm assuming it's on Amazon, it's, it's, but uh, yeah, it's, anywhere it's else not, in particular. It's only it's not very expensive. It's twelve bucks. It's uh, 150 pages. I think it'll be a a fun read for people if who like to think about these kinds of ideas. Yeah, Amazon and find bookstores everywhere, as people like to say, right? Find bookstores. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really, it's available everywhere. I mean, and uh, Institute General Semantics they they sell it as well. 
So uh, right. you can Google that and you won't have any problem finding it. All right. And I, Chris, and I don't get any ahead. proceeds for the, by the way, I don't get any royalties or anything. So it's done uh, for the Institute. So all proceeds goes to toward them. All right. Okay. So I'll include a link uh, to Chris's book and uh, the others that we've spoken about here deals from hell and, uh, and Rousseau's very last book of his life. Uh, and we didn't even get into talking uh, talking any more about his particular ideas about some uh, uh, some very interesting things. And I think most mostly uh, people tend to focus on, as you said, his his political persuasions, the social contract, and that kind of stuff. But he's a whole he he rewards a whole uh, summer season of study at the very least. So I think so. I think if I had to sum up the big idea from that book, I'd say you know. His, his idea of people are naturally happy, but they become an unhappy by yeah. comparing themselves to other people and force and focusing too much on external things. Yeah, and that's not, the, yeah. The hell is other people. As that's it. Sartre, that's it. Sartre said, if you exist in other people's opinions. Okay, Chris, I feel like we could go on for uh, quite a bit longer going through your bookshelves uh, and mine, but let's leave it there. Okay. And, uh, we'll yeah, pick we'll it up do again. it again. Yep. Yeah, good good stuff. Okay, thanks a lot, Chris. All Appreciate right, it. Talk and to for, Joel, yep. for listeners, uh again, do head over to the Substack page. You can get uh plenty of research reports, columns from Bill Bonner, Dan Danning, Tom Dyson, uh, and myself, and many more conversations like this, including the ones I referred to, uh, our past conversations with Chris Mayer, uh, where we noodle through other of his extended archives. All right, we'll be back next week. Thanks a lot. Thank you.